1: What's happening, people? And what you know good? We'd like to thank you for listening and spending your time with us. This is Pulling Back the Curtain podcast, the most provocative, the most exciting, the baddest, baddest podcast in the land. We come with the dopest topics, hitting with the rawest opinion while giving you the straight up facts. No fake news here. I'm Jules. Oppressed. We give sight to the blind, ladies and gentlemen.
0: Alexa, what is the baddest podcast in the land? Here's Pulling Back the Curtain podcast registered from Amazon Music. Playing the latest episode. This podcast is sponsored by Sumato Coffee. Sumato Coffee believes that coffee should be unique and high quality from bean to cup, and that coffee is best two to fourteen days after it's been roasted. Beyond that, it starts to become stale. At Sumato Coffee, they're incredibly concerned and transparent about when your coffee is roasted. That's why they put the roast date right on the back. Pulling Back the Curtain podcast listeners receive a 20% discount off their order by using promo code BALLERSCOFFEE. To learn more about Sumato Coffee, please visit them at sumatocoffee.com. That's S-U-M-A-T-O-C-O-F-F-E-E dot com.
1: What's happening, people? And what you know good? We'd like to thank you for listening and spending your time with us. This is Pulling Back the Curtain podcast, the most provocative the most exciting, the baddest podcast in the land. We're in you with the dopest topics, the rawest opinion while giving you the straight-up facts. No fake news here. I'm Jules. Press. We give a sight to the blind, ladies and gentlemen. On this episode, we'll be pulling back the curtain on history of redlining practices within the real estate industry. Press, what's poppin', baby? Chilling, man. How was your uh, holiday, bro? Man, it was good, man. I, I worked, but we had a nice little spread at work. Afterwards, went over to mom's, ate there. And so it was, man, I was stuffed all day, man. It was good. What they, uh, what they hit y'all with some of that honey baked ham over there at work? Oh, man. We had some ham, some turkey, some, man, you name it, some some rolls, desserts, everything. Peas, man, my God, boy. I love it hey, this time of year, man. Shit, sound like you ate good over there, fam. And then, and then afterwards, one of them, you know, you got to have mom's cook.
0: Yeah, man. Unfortunately, I didn't get into mom's cooking, man. Mama, she was uh, she was at the crib by herself, man. I I sent I sent um a delivery for her, for her to have a meal or whatnot, but uh, okay. Yeah, she, yeah. She didn't she didn't want anybody to come through, man. She's like, hey, you know what? She's like, I want to be you know safe with this thing, and she said, hey, we'll see what happens with Christmas. So, uh, oh no, I got you. Yes, yeah, so we, 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 we yeah, we checked on her, but yeah, man. She she wanted to she wanted to play it safe. Uh what what'd you send over there to her? Man, you know, we had to hook her up, man. Turkey, and it, it, we get we sent some mac and cheese and all the fixes, but it ain't her mac and cheese. You know what I mean? She she makes some of the the best mac and cheese ever, bro. Is it how many cheeses do she use? Man, dude, she uses like probably
1: about five or six of them joints. Ooh, Man, you talking about some cheese, boy? I gotta have some of that, man.
0: Yeah, man. You know what? I'm surprised you never had none.
1: Yeah, man.
0: man loves some mac and cheese. Yeah, she throw down. The stuff that we have for Thanksgiving, we got it from a local restaurant because as I mentioned, you know, we try to support the small businesses. Uh it was cool, but you know, Thanksgiving wasn't the same without my mom's mac and cheese. So hopefully uh, we could get some of that at Thanks at uh, Christmas time.
1: Oh yeah, 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 definitely. She definitely got to do it. Hopefully, you know, with the uh vaccine stuff, I, you know, when they get together, who's getting it first or whatever the case may be, they can lift the uh, lift the restrictions and you know, people can see see each other, families, and and kind of kind of kind of fest, be in a festive mood and celebrate with each other.
0: Yeah, man, we'll, we'll we'll definitely see, we'll definitely see. But I'm glad, man, I'm glad though that you you know you had a good time. I, I just kind of lay low, chilled. The football games are fucking trash.
1: Uh, so. <laughs> <laughs> <Say those. laughs>
0: <laughs> I'm sitting sort here of like, man, if 2020 can't get any worse, I'm like, Thanksgiving, we look forward to watching some good football. And then the Ravens game, that one gets uh freaking postponed uh, to Tuesday. I'm like, and then we got to watch the Cowboys. And who's the other team that played?
1: Was, yeah, Detroit. It was Detroit and Houston, right? Yeah. That yeah, game. That was like, a slut. <laughs> that was a slut. Yeah. Yeah. Dude, <laughs> that Dallas game, I'm like, eh, this shit's terrible, too. It wasn't. Yeah, it wasn't good ones, man. I'm sorry, bro. You had to go through
0: that, man. It's okay, man. Drinking helps though. <laughs> <laughs> man. Oh man. That next day looking at all those bottles of liquor, I was like, Whoa, we got after it over here. Sure. Damn. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, yeah, like you said though, man. We'll we'll see what happens, you know, with the next holiday. But for this one, I just, you know, I kept it I kept it low-key as possible. You know, okay. So, In the room so, thing, at least you
1: you ate and you and you and you Kind of relaxed and rested a little bit.
0: I definitely did, man. It was like probably one of the, the few days, probably this year, that I've actually kind of like zoned out and really didn't do anything. Because, you know, we, we got all this stuff going on with these podcasts and at work and family. So, like, that was actually the only day, man, this year I can look back and say, man, I didn't really do anything. And it was awesome.
1: <laughs> okay, that's good. We need that. We need that from time to time.
0: Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Well, man, let's get into the episode a little bit here, man. So, audience, you know, you heard Jules. We're going on this episode, we're going to uh, pull back the curtain on the history of redlining practices within the real estate in- industry. But before we get into that, there's just been a couple of things in current event wise that we wanted to touch on. The first thing that I wanted to touch on, and I got a lot of shit to say about this one. <laughs> What's that, man? Man, that fucking Kyle Rittenhouse making bail, bro. Uh huh. I was not surprised when I saw your boy Ricky Schroeder from Silver School. <laughs> was one of the ones that fucking helped this kid get out of fucking jail, man. I'm like, dude, it, it's just par for the course, bro. Just I expected that from that kid. When that when I was watching that show, we were kids, and that son of a bitch had that damn train in his know. crib. I was like, man, fuck this dude, man. So anyway, <laughs> you look at this situation in its entirety, man. It's it's crazy that a guy like this is being celebrated as a hero, and people aren't looking at the situation for what it was and what he did, right? So Mm. point blank, he crossed state lines with a firearm. Mm -hmm. I don't know who brought him there. You know, that part is still under uh, contention. But the simple fact of the matter is, the 17-year-old kid carrying a firearm, and you got to be 18 to do so. And you got to be 21 to possess a FOIA card. I'm sure Jules will correct me if I'm wrong on both of those things. Kid Mm. 17. Whether you say it was self-defense or not, the simple facts of the matter is, this fucking kid had a firearm that he shouldn't have had possession of. The fact that these people in this country are making this kid a hero, the bail was set at a high level. And that there are people in this country that raise money not only to get him released from jail, but they also raise money for his defense. And he killed two people. hmm You know, I was watching the
1: five heart beats the other day. Uh-oh. And Eddie Kane was singing a song. And nobody's oh, saying
0: like Eddie Kane joke.
1: <laughs> and he said the one of the verses was was two wrongs to make it right now uh it was a name uh Kyle Kyle Rittenhouse shouldn't have been if he was he, okay let's let's just say he went there supposedly to help protect businesses and property okay <laughs> that's <laughs> that's what that's what he said yep. <laughs> Dale. okay, so I can only take him that's what he said, okay, all right, granny, if you want to do that fine, you know i I'm, I'm not i'm not a fan of people destroying business and property and stuff like that. I, I I understand. Okay, I get it. But do you need a do you need a rifle? I think you kind of lose the message if when you bring in, when you bring in a weapon like that to that. Now, granted, it's hostile. Now, if you wanted to carry a concealed weapon, maybe a, a handgun or something like that, if you want. But then again, this kid's 17. So it's kind of, okay, where's the parents have to say, hey, listen, you know what? Nah, we're going to leave that alone, man. This, that's not your house.
0: Stay your ass at home, son. Yeah,
1: yeah, that's not your house. Let them deal with that. It was in Kenosha. And I've been to Kenosha. Kenosha is a good spot. Me personally, the parents should have stepped in and told them to stay at home. It is what it is. He went out there. He had that firearm. Okay. So what what happened? What happened? He, You know, so I saw in the videos and stuff like that. He got into it. Now, I ain't going to lie to you, Prez. He going to get off. Because when you see the video. Because he's white. <laughs> well, it helps. <laughs> he uh, Paul Mooney said he got the complexion for the protection. That's so right. <laughs> so he's whitening plus when you look at the video and stuff like that, they did get they did jumble him. And one of the one of the the guys he ended up shooting, he 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 shot him in the arm though, but he had a handgun. In court, I'm just I'm just speaking on what I'm seeing and stuff like that. He might get off with those with those uh charges. But the one charge, he might not, you know, he won't get off, and possession with that firearm. Okay, that's being said, they set the bill for two million. So my man Ricky Schroeder Silver Spoon post bill. Yeah, he did one hundred and fifty, and
0: then another person, the fucking Pillow Man. Yeah, he a clown too, the CEO from uh, My Pillow, right?
1: Yeah, My Pillow. He posted uh, what fifty, I think, mm-hmm. because you know, two, you know, two million, you know, ten percent of that is just two hundred thousand. So they, they, they supply, you know. They post bail for him so he would be able to get out. Like you said, man,
0: I'm like you. I'm not surprised. I'm not surprised. So this is, this is my thing about this, man. Mm-hmm. You know, people have all this fake outrage over destruction of buildings. I mean, you just brought that up and, and the things mm-hmm. that happened during the civil unrest. Fuck that shit. This man killed people. Mm-hmm. I don't give a fuck if he was getting his ass whooped. You mm-hmm. know, self-defense is one thing. Fucking fight. Mm-hmm. What happened to that? Remember back in the day when you and I, we got into two people. What happened to, if there was a confrontation? The first thing you're doing is you're going to shoot somebody, bro?
1: Right. I'm not right. Exactly. That's why I said he should have stayed at home. But if yeah. he didn't, if he went there, he shouldn't have that gun. Because you only, you send it a bad, bad message anyway while you're standing out there with it. You're talking about protecting buildings that's not yours and property and stuff. It's not yours. It's not your house. If you want to help, that's fine. You know, that's fine to help to kind of keep the peace, talk people down and stuff like that, break up fights or whatever the case might be. Tell people, hey, don't throw that stuff in there. Okay. But when you, you send a bad message, when well, you stand out there with that with that assault rifle,
0: right? Because to me, I see you with that, and even I'm just going to even take it a step further. When I go to Bears games pre-COVID, obviously, listeners, but <laughs> you walk past that damn museum campus and you got cops there mm-hmm. holding them ARs, and mm-hmm. I'm like son, I'm just going to the football game. Like, what's going on? Are we in Beirut? Whenever I see that kind of stuff, Joe, it just kind of like, it raises your senses a little bit. So now you got this kid walking around with this goddamn AR. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. you know, it's no surprise to your point, Judith, that something kicked off. You know, whether, you know, people were fighting with him or whatever the case may be, all I know is that two people are dead now and another person got injured. I do know that the father for one of the victims, he actually asked for them to have the bail set Even higher because he Mm -hmm. said, look, this kid's a flight risk. If he would travel across state lines to do what he did, how can you guarantee that the kid's not going to go somewhere? And now we see that he's got financial backing and he even picked up a coffee sponsor. Yeah. Yeah. So how the hell, how the hell do we live in a country where people are more outraged over destruction of property, but a human life is taken and we're going to sit here and call this guy a hero, but also he gets a sponsorship out of it.
1: Yeah, that's what the a little, fuck. That's rough right there. You, you, another thing I don't like about it, man. I mean, you know, this case right here, take one. It's 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 a political overtone over this, man. I mean, you get supporters from BLM and other people saying, you know, you know, calling Rittenhouse a trigger happy right supremacist. I'm just quoting what you know what they saying. Rittenhouse, Kyle, he's just saying he was just guarding buildings. He wasn't. He's not a racist and nothing like that. And you know, just trying to stand for self defense. So. Automatically, it's, it's taking on this, this, this thing where there's, there's sides. Instead of right and right and wrong and wrong, there's sides to this. It's either he's a racist or is he protected or oh, well, he's just self-defense, using just self-defense. And, and I hate this because now you, the whole world is seeing this. And now it's, it's you know, you got these two sides, like I said. And, it's, and we need to educate and see what's going on here. Like, he shouldn't, have, he shouldn't have that gun. Like we're saying, he shouldn't have that gun. Hell, he shouldn't even been there. Okay. If that's the case, okay, fine. We will deal with that. But here's the thing. When you're out there in that setting, it's it's hostile. You get fire and destruction and people chatting, people are angry and stuff like that. Fires just make more fire. You know what I'm saying? Just create more fire and stuff. And that's just, you know, a scene that we we
0: shouldn't have. I mean, this point blank, man. Yeah. And I was out in Kenosha this summer protesting mm-hmm. because what happened to Jacob Blake, we could get into that on in a future episode. I still think that situation was unnecessary, no matter what his previous crimes or whatever against humanity were. Mm -hmm. That situation in itself was wrong. Like I said, I was out there. No one that I saw out there was tearing up any property. Mm -hmm. The fact of the matter is, is that you have a small percentage of people that will take advantage of anything, right? And so what you saw, those nights of destruction were just that. People were pissed off. They were angry because this stuff is a combination of the stuff that me and Jules have talked about on this podcast. This stuff isn't just because of a George Floyd or a Jacob Blake or a Breonna Taylor. We're talking about decades and decades of things and conditions that have been placed on people of color and people are going to snap. People are going to basically be angry. But what I don't like is that there is a different standard that is placed on a kid like Cal Rittenhouse. We're supposed to feel sorry for this kid. That's the media narrative right now. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, this kid, you know, his life is being ruined. Well, guess what? He made that decision to cross state lines with a firearm. He right. made that decision to use his stimulus money to buy a rifle, AR. I'm just gonna say this: Jules is in law enforcement. I'm a Ford car owner, a concealed carry owner. I have multiple firearms. I'm not saying anything about anyone that wants to bear arms or mm-hmm. anyone that wants to protect themselves. But guess what? When I'm out there protesting and doing different things out there, I'm not out there with an AR on my, on my shoulders. My weapons and my firearms are for me when I'm protecting my home and my family. That's the bottom line here. And so for people to compare what he did to someone that basically is doing self-defense, standing their ground, protecting their property, is something totally different. He stuck his nose in a situation that had nothing to do with him, and he killed people. Let's call it what it is. Dylan Roof is another situation mm-hmm. where an mm-hmm. individual went in and did mass murdering of people, and his situation was looked at differently. The goddamn law enforcement took this son of a bitch to go get Burger King.
1: It couldn't be me. I'll take him somewhere, all right? We we'll won't be know, going to Burger King.
0: I know you would, but that's the thing about it is that's the difference between what's in your heart Mm -hmm. and in this situation, you're only stating the facts. I'm just looking at this thing and I'm just seeing that I feel like there is a double standard in these situations, right? So Cal Rittenhouse in that situation. So you brought up the videos and I did see a couple of those videos and it did look like he was kind of like tussling with some of those guys and and so forth. Um, One of the stories was that one of the people that he killed, I think actually they said he was trying to get the firearm from him because I guess he Mm -hmm. was shooting at people. So in these situations, you never really know what is actual information. But what I will know, and, and what I do know, and what I do agree with you on it is, Jules, is the fact that he shouldn't have had his ass there. No. Point blank. Like I say,
1: it's messed up because one of the victims ended up hitting, hitting the house with a skateboard, okay? One, another one had a gun. And another one, like you said, a was trying to take the firearm from him. Now, from a law enforcement stance here, it's justifiable for you to use deadly force that somebody try to disarm you. Now that's in law enforcement. Now, as far as with somebody with a rifle and stuff like, or concealed carry, or anybody with a gun, if somebody try to take the gun from you, you can do that. That's why I'm saying, dude, it doesn't look good when you go to court and these homicide. Because look, he's being charged as an adult, but the, hom- the you know he's getting charged with first degree homicide, reckless endangerment, minor possession of a firearm. He he me personally, he's only going to get charged for that minor possession of that firearm. Yeah, you think that he's only going to get that class A misdemeanor. Yeah, yeah. He's, he, because he, 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 look, on a defense, he's going to come self defense. You look at that video and stuff like that saying he's walking away and they coming towards him and they hit him. They knock him down on the ground and one dude trying to disarm another dude, hit him with a skateboard. And so, they said, oh, he was fearful of his life. Now, you just got all you got to do is just, you know what I'm saying, convince that to a jury. And it depends what the jury's looking like and this and that. And he walking, but he definitely getting um, charged with that uh, possession of a firearm. And also Dominic Black, a 19 year he's uh he's facing charges too because he provided uh written with that rifle.
0: Well, there's a couple of different stories about that, but I but I what I hear though is he used uh, stimulus funds to actually did he?
1: It, yeah. Okay, okay,
0: yeah. But like you said, there's a lot of different stories out there. I mean, mm. I, and I'm also sick, I'm sick and tired of the whole the uh, the narrative of basically people trying to claim self-defense because this is my thing. We saw where uh, in in history. Uh, what's the guy named, the idiot down there in Florida that uh, that killed... Uh... Oh, yeah, George Zimmerman. Yeah, right? Mm-hmm. Now, we've also seen over the years how this guy has used that kid's death to almost mock and rub it in his family's face, right? And we're just seeing more and more of these situations in history where I'm just like, why is it okay for certain individuals to get away with this kind of stuff and they can hide behind the law, right? But then you got a little kid like Tamir Rice a 12-year-old kid that had a fucking toy gun, and he was Mm -hmm. gunned down. So it's like, why is there a different standard? Because this kid, Rittenhouse, is walking around with this AR, right? Mm -hmm. Legitimately walking around with AR. A cop, they said, drove past, saw him with the AR, they kept going. This kid was allowed to leave the scene and get back in his vehicle and go the fuck back where he was coming from, right? Mm -hmm. He slept in his bed. He was cool, chilling, Right. And you got a kid, Tamir Rice, who's playing on the playground with a toy gun, one of those air pellet guns with the orange tip. His parents just basically went through their third Thanksgiving without him at home. Kyle Rittenhouse was having Thanksgiving dinner with his family. Now, you want to talk to me about what's right in this world, listeners? That's the problem that I have with these situations. All
1: right, man. <laughs> we can talk about this forever. It's What we what we talking about on, on this pod, everything we talked about, there's this, you, we got this one game, but there's different sets of rules for different folks. There's things where they're gonna tell you, well, those are apples and oranges, Tamir Rice and Kyle Rittenhouse. Okay. Outside, people looking at this and saying, well, well, what is the difference and why one outcome is different than the other one? And then the only thing you can come up with is because of complexion. That's, the, that's, you know, prayers, man. This 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 is one of these things that unfortunately we might be talking about for the rest of our lives, man. <laughs> I don't have
0: any answers, man. I'm I'm just going to say this and this. I don't subscribe to that type of thinking because that's the problem that we've become uh, desensitized to these things. We've come to accept our conditions. And that's why I think it's important that we have these type of conversations on this platform, because the fact that this platform reaches now 70 plus countries, this is important. And we need people to understand that, listen, this shit's wrong. It's not OK for one group versus another group. It's not right for anybody to do what Kyle Rittenhouse did. It's not right for anybody to do what Dylan. R- when you do domestic terrorism, that shit's not cool. I don't care what race you are, but we need to be in a situation where people look at these situations and not have sympathy for one person because of the hue of their skin, but then another person they can look at and say, oh, well, this person, he looked older for his age. They'll try to criminalize a victim. And that's what we see in this country and the way that things work. And that's the stuff that that I talk about. And that's the stuff that frustrates me. And we have to make sure that we keep our foot on the gas and make sure that people still understand that we're not going to stop talking about these things. We're not going to just sit here and accept this stuff and say, oh, well, you know, it's just going to keep happening. No, fuck that. Oh, well, shit. Because if our ancestors had that type of attitude and mentality, where the hell do we, we, what would we be right now? And that's the thing that I look at with this. We got to keep talking about this stuff. We got to keep protesting these days. We have to mm-hmm. keep the message out there because this stuff is not right. Well, here's, here's the thing.
1: Here's the thing. We got to, not only we need to talk about it, we got to learn from this. People need to be educated on things, on, on this world now. Like I said, Kyle Rittenhouse, even though he was out there, he was, he was bogus. He was in violation for that. But the thing is, those cats, what they, when they went, went at him. They gave they gave Kyle Wittenhouse an and out. I'm not saying right wrong and different, but the the coach is gonna look at this. They ain't gonna charge this man, or, or this kid. They ain't gonna charge because look, you you see in the video, all you had to do is this. Hey, my man was was fearful for his life and fighting for his life, and that's why he shot. That's why he shot and killed a couple of them. Then the other boy, the other the other guy, uh, uh Gail, a uh, Gage, I think his name was. He's the one that had the handgun. So okay, here here's the thing: a setting like this. You see a man with a, a kid or whatever the case may be with a, a firearm or something like that. I mean, don't engage him. And he shouldn't have been there. You know what I'm saying? Kyle shouldn't have been there. And those those men shouldn't engage
0: him. I, I, this is the thing, man. I, I still struggle when I look at this situation and all the support that this kid's gotten. And I look at all the families of people of color that have been murdered. Mm-hmm. And these people don't even have enough money to even have funerals for their loved ones. This kid's had millions of dollars that have basically been thrown in for him for his defense fund. That is a problem with this country. That is a problem with this America. We had a president in office who condemned and criminalizes racial justice protesters, right? He basically tries to call organizations that fight injustice and calls them Marxist organizations, but then praises white supremacist groups like the Proud Boys (laughs) and individuals that do terrorist acts like what Cal Rittenhouse did. Mm -hmm. And I still say he shouldn't have had his ass there. Mm -hmm. And I still say, whatever the situation may happen, he still pulled the trigger. And he he basically killed two people. Now, to your point, I'm sure that the legal system is going to find some kind of way to help this kid, because that is the way this legal system is, because this legal system is not designed for people of color. And this is a known fact This goes back into history. Listeners, if this is something that you dispute, I just educate you to go back and read through the history books, and you'll see example after example of how all white juries acquitted people that look like themselves when they committed crimes uh, against humanity. And so my big thing is when I look at this situation, the fact that we still have to sit here and watch this stuff in 2020 and still think in our minds like, oh, nothing's going to happen to this kid because they're going to find a way to get him off. Right. Just like Jules mentioned here earlier. The Mm -hmm. only thing that they're going to get him on is the fact that he was a 17 year old kid that was carrying a firearm and that's what they're going to get him on. and the bogus things that they're going to come out with is they're going to try to tell you that this kid was in self-defense, but if he would have had his ass at home like he should have been, then none of this stuff would have been even a,
1: a situation. Right, right. Now, see, that's why I say, A, he shouldn't have been there, and then if I see a dude, hey, I somebody carrying a, a rifle, man, I ain't going to approach this, man. I ain't going to
0: approach that. Well, I already told you, man. When I walk to Bears games, I see that shit. I'm like, man, that shit make uh-huh. me... I'm like, I ain't got nothing to do with you. Keep it moving, you know? Mm-hmm. Shit, it wears me out, but it's like, man, whatever. So I'm going mm-hmm. to the game. But, you know, but like I said, man, this this shit, man, is just it's, it's come to the point where <laughs> the media and I'm just going to just just I'm just going to be as clear as I can to our listeners on this. They will have you hate the people that are being oppressed. Right. But then they'll make you forgive people who are doing the oppression. And so when I look at a kid like Kyle Rittenhouse, I'm not going to make any excuses for that kid. Fuck him. And fuck anybody that supports him and fuck anybody that raised money for him. Because at the end of the day, what he did was wrong. Because whether he was a a white kid, whether he was a black kid, that shit's wrong. And it Mm -hmm. shouldn't happen. Point blank. The fact of the matter here on this situation is we have too many of these situations that happen and there's no accountability for the individuals that that do this stuff. That's it. (laughs) I mean, look at back in the day with Dr. King. Now, Dr. Mm -hmm. King was out here protesting. He was making things happen. But how did our government view Dr. King? They called him a communist. They had people in his own race that looked at him as a troublemaker. And that's the thing that's wrong with this community now is because if individuals stand up and rise up, you have people over here on the side that are you know poking holes in the movement and this and that and, and, it's, and it's this and it's that and instead of like saying, you know what? I may not agree with everything you guys may do, but you know what? damn it, it's better than me sitting on the sideline and just allowing this shit to continue to happen on and on and on again, right? Right, So J. Edgar Hoover, he labeled the Black Panther Party one of the greatest threats to internal security in the country. And you know, Jules, that it had nothing to do with the fact that these individuals believed in armed self-defense, which is what everybody's going to let Kyle Rittenhouse hide behind. But the fact of the matter is, they offered free children's breakfast programs throughout the, uh, the community. Right. That was the issue that he had with that party. Now, why is that? Well, see, here's the
1: thing. With Jager, with, with the Black Panther uh, Party movement, he was right about one thing. They are a threat because they was using the Constitution in, in, in for their advantage. That, that's all. They was educated. That's why there was a threat. There was a, 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 a Black organization, a Black group who was, who was educated. They had their pro, uh, pilot program. They did uh, lunches for the breakfast for the kids. They was walking them to school. There was there was overseers of the neighborhood. Again, we talk about this stuff, stuff that's happened in the past, people leaving blueprints and marks to stuff that we should, you know, study and also do in today's time. But okay, we'll we'll get there. But that's why they there was liberal threat, because they was there was positive, there was, they, they, they was positivity. They was they was good uh, as a good organization. There wasn't an organization that was radical or or anarchist.
0: No, they, they wasn't doing nothing wrong. To so your point, though, they were considered a threat because of the narrative that was placed mm-hmm. against them, right? Mm-hmm. And so that was to my point. You got to be careful that because the media will have you thinking things about individuals. Because when you look back in history, the Black Panther Party were the ones that kind of kept the neighborhoods afloat. Exactly. Exactly. They kind of kept things going. They kept order. I mean, my grandmother used to tell stories. She grew up, uh, you know, I think it was like when she and my grandfather moved from the South, they bought a a house on like 44th, I want to say maybe 44th, 45th, somewhere in Michigan, somewhere like that, right? And they said those guys would be up and down the neighborhoods, making sure that, you know, the women would be safe to get to and from the bus stops. Like everything that these guys were about, they were about their people. right? And to Jules's point, something that he brought up and I want our audience to just Think about that. We have these blueprint prints, right? But then over time, we just get further and further away from the examples that were set in front of us. And that's why I can't let a kid like Kyle Rittenhouse off the off the hook because the very argument that people are going to allow him to use is the same argument that people use against the Black Panthers and say that those guys were armed and they were this and they were that. Well, guess what? These guys didn't put their weapons on people. They just used their constitutional rights, like Jewel said. That's all. That's all. That so that, is deep, that, it's, it's deep, brother. It's deep. And there's <laughs> levels to this. And that's the thing. Right. People have to be ready for these type of conversations. You can't shy away from it and say, oh, my God, you know, I, I can't hear this kind of stuff. Because guess what? That's a privilege in that to be able to say, oh, well, you know, I, I, that's just something. It's, it's just too much for me to even think about. Well, guess what? It's because you don't have to deal with it. Because people that look like me and Jules, we don't have mm-hmm. that choice. And he's in law enforcement. So he yeah. has it even twice as hard. Yeah, yeah, it's a it's
1: a it's a it's a struggle. <laughs> oh man. But it's, see, that's go ahead, Perez, Because you know what, real quick, with the Black Panther, and that's why they was doing so they was uh positive and, and, and it shined a light to the community and stuff like that. That's why you know the, the CIA or whoever was responsible did what they did by putting that dope in the neighborhood. Now that's a different story. We can get into that in the future, but but it's, 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 it's a tactic that was, that was, that was messed up. And uh, that's the only way of getting that, you know, de- destroying the party that way. You know, so with, with uh, J. Edgar Hoover, he was upset and he was afraid of the rise of that messiah. He was afraid of Martin Luther King and Stokely Carmichael and, and Fred Hampton, all them boys and stuff like that. Yes, because they, they was unifying the people. And anytime you get unification and, and, and these people don't understand that, they're fearful. Right. And they do whatever they have to do to try to disrupt that and, 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 and kill that. It's deep, brother. Man, like you said, man, it's levels, man. It's, it's,
0: le- it's levels to it. And I'll just say this, man. Not everybody's going to agree with what I'm getting ready to say. But listen, man, this is my platform and this is Jules' platform. Uh-oh. And we're going to say what we got to say here. So this okay. is it. For any of our listeners that still question why people and players are out here dealing. this is why. For any of our listeners that don't understand the frustration of people that have protested, frustrations of people that are out here sounding off on the things that are bothering them in this world and the civil war unrest that followed, this is why. Listen to these conversations. Listen to these names. These aren't just ra- random names that we're bringing up. These are names of history of people that have been either killed, they've been vilified. hmm no one takes the time to even think about things past the what the media has told you about them. We all have a responsibility to educate ourselves, to arm ourselves with knowledge. So that way we understand what's, what's actually, like, legit versus fake news, right? Because we don't do fake news on this podcast. Just tell y'all no that every episode. Nope. No fake news, right? No, sir. No, sir. And the thing about it is, man, is that we, as a, as a country and as a people, we got to do better got to educate ourselves, got to arm yourselves with knowledge. Because guess what? <laughs> you guys have children. You, you, you have people that you interact with on a, on, a, on a daily basis. It's important for you to help to change the conditions by educating not only yourself, but then the people around you, because that's how these things change. We can put every law into to put place, but until the root of these issues are fixed, which is people's mindsets and their mentality, then these things don't ever truly change. You know,
1: I'm glad we got this platform, uh prayers, because listen, I try to tell people, I try to educate folks you know, while I'm at work or somebody come up to me and just ask me just a question on law enforcement or what things they can do and not do and stuff. The biggest thing is about when people uh if if somebody was burglarizing their homes, what should they do and stuff? Should they, you know, can they can they shoot somebody? So <laughs> and that that questionnaire, man, is like, I said, well, here's the thing. Let's just make sure that person have have uh. Oh, it depends on what state you in. Let let remind you of that, cause some states get different sets of rules and stuff like that. So I just I just tell people, listen, just make sure that you 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 feel like your 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 life was in in danger, that you fearful for your life or your family's life, because other than that, if they jumping out the window or they in the backyard, you might get some explaining. If if I can just if people were just listening to stuff like that, here, 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 hear me out. It's hard to go against self-defense. It's just really hard because that's how that person's feeling that day, that, that that time or the incident. When you have these tools on somebody was coming at you, somebody has a weapon, uh, it, 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 he's overpowering you and stuff like that. Those are words defense can use to, to get the get the people off. Or, and it could be justifiable. So my thing is, ultimately, is avoid confrontation altogether if you can. Or do a a, a, a thing what, what King did. You can protest uh, peacefully. Do things peacefully. But when you find yourself in a situation and this dude, you getting the best of him. It, here's the thing. Like prayer said earlier, cats ain't fighting down these days. So. Even getting into a competition, even if you aren't just going to throw hands, you got to be careful on people coming back at you with something
0: else. Which we saw with King
1: Von. So, with, yeah. Right, right, right. I'm just talking. I'm just talking freely on just if you can just get away. If you can just, just de-escalate and just get away from the competition because it, it's never going to end well. It's never going to end well, man, and it's just messed up because, like you said, press, this boy shouldn't have been there and get two people dead and one one person arm. He won't. He lost the use use of his arm. Right. And for what? Because let's be honest, the three guys was out there protesting for for uh, Jacob Blake. I don't know these. I don't know these guys. I don't know if they was out there for him or if they was on something else. I do not know.
0: But that part doesn't matter. But, right. But right.
1: Okay. I got you. I yep. got you. And then Kyle, he was out there, he was out there doing what he doing. He's he said he was protecting property. Okay. Sure. Right. <laughs> but in a long, and you look at the you look at this thing, we got two more people dead and one injured. And another one it might be doing well, you know. Well, we'll see. We'll see. Might be doing time. And off and all for what, man. That's why it's always best. The best approach is always talk things out peacefully, have a peaceful protest or a peaceful dialogue, and you know what I'm saying. Like I said, you know, always disagree, agree to disagree. But when you start bringing guns and stuff, the situation it it just it, it won't turn out well.
0: And the last thing I'm gonna say about this, when we get into the, the the nuts and bolts of the episode, is it sounds good when it comes to people saying, you know, peacefully do this and peacefully do that. But we've mm-hmm. seen in our, in, our, in our country's history that that doesn't always work. I mean, we talked about just recently with the um, our episode on Black on um, Bloody uh, Sunday; mm-hmm. those individuals are as peaceful as they got, and they got their heads knocked off, right? We saw what Colin Kaepernick took a knee to bring awareness to police brutality in this country, and he was vilified in this country. And then mm-hmm. we have a person like Kyle Rittenhouse that is shooting people for whatever the circumstance may be. We can get into the minutia of it, but at the end of the day, is two people resulted in two people ended up being dead because of his actions, right? Mm-hmm. But we're not dealing the vilification, but an individual took a knee. So one thing that I would just say is people are going to always find a way to nitpick something when you're bringing up something that they don't want to hear. So my point is, whether you're doing it peacefully or whatever, if it's subject matters that people in this country want to just pretend that they're not not problems, they want to sweep these things under the rug, then they're going to pick and choose. They're going to nitpick things. And that's what we've seen in this history. And I think that it's important to not allow people to tell you how to demonstrate. You demonstrate the, the best way that you see fit, because if it demonstrates results and uh, actions that changed conditions, then I'm all for it. Because we saw how this summer, how the conversation had never been that vibrant in the way of social justice initiatives. Now, the one thing I'm going to say to you, Jules, is I thought that a lot of corporations were a little fake and phony in the fact that they were, you know, jumping in on this stuff because it was a flavor of the month. This isn't a flavor of the month for me. I'm a mm-hmm. black man in this country. I'm going to continue to be a Black man in this country. So because for three months, you know, certain people thought it was cool to jump onto slogans. Well, guess what? It's not a slogan for me. This is a, my life. I'm going to use our platform here on Pulling Back the Curtain to make sure that we continue to push this message forward. And that's pretty much all I have to say about <laughs> this. And i am done with this subject because oh, okay. the thing about it is we can nitpick the, the ins and outs of it all together. But at the end of the day, Jules... And our mm-hmm. listeners, you guys know what it is. <laughs> and that's, that's, that's it.
1: All right, I got you. Hey, sounds good with me, man. That was a good segment there, bro. That was a good uh, segment, man. I mean, hey, all we said is all we said. And, and we'll see what happens, man. I mean, you said it beautifully, man. I. I have nothing else myself, bro.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, like you said earlier, man, uh, on this episode, man, we're going to get into redlining practices within the real estate industry. So for Mm -hmm. any of our audience that may not be familiar with what this stuff is, we're going to on this. This is going to be a two part basically episode. So this is going to be the first part of that conversation. But what we're going to do is we're going to give you guys the history of what these redlining practices are. Right. And kind of what they meant to uh, African-Americans and people of color in our history. So a lot of people realized that back in the day, uh, there was a a depression that happened over the the entire country. So our system was really uh, depressed and it was collapsed. So the FHA sought out plans and ideas to boost the market for single family homes back in that time. So they hired an economist and he was like a person that had wrote like this major paper right on... A 100 years of land values uh, in the city of Chicago. So this was someone that basically ranked various races and nationalities by order of their desirability, right? So you guys could already understand the way that this situation went. So in his ranking system, he said the most desired uh, people were of English, German, Scottish, and Irish des- descent. And he said that the least desirable people at the bottom of his list were Blacks and Hispanics, right? His goal was to improve the accuracy of real estate appraisals. And the reason why that was important was because there were corporations back then that were looking to standardize the process for making mortgage loans. They were looking to avoid undue risk, right? Because you got to think about it, during those times, the economy wasn't as strong, right? And so a lot of these organizations were trying to make sure that they were making profitable loans. It was also a thing that they were looking at back then to bail out any homeowners that lost their homes during that crash, right? So what Hoyt and some of these organizations did was they mapped out in various cities across the the country. They divided neighborhoods into various risk categories, right? And they were based on ethnic hierarchy and they were coded. So I'm just going to give you guys a quick (laughs) <laughs> reading on how these codes worked. Uh-oh. Okay. And then I'm going to kick it over to Jules because I know he probably got a lot to say on this too. But the thing about it was, the green codes across all these various cities, and I'm just going to focus on Chicago. So for Chicago, right, the green areas were more of your white affluent areas. The blue-coated areas in, in the Chicagoland area were Basically, considered more of your, uh, your stable and upwardly mobile races. So, like Jewish people, Irish people, Italians. Now, they had a yellow coding area that was basically determined your undesirable, often labeled like working class white people, right? And then we look at the red category, which comes to what we're talking about with the redlining. So, the red were areas that were predominantly black or Hispanic, right? And in these redlined areas, it was either very expensive or non-existent to get a loan. So a lot of times, these individuals in these redlined areas, they have to rely on private sales from homeowners to be able to buy a home. And I mean, Jules, I mean, you can probably imagine, and our audience can imagine that if you're having to, to settle on buying a loan private, I mean, buying a home privately from a homeowner, they're probably gonna fuck you over on that deal, right? <laughs> <laughs> Damn. So the one quick thing I wanted to say that, Jules, I, I know you wanted to get on something with this, but the, we talked about that yellow area real quick. And I said that was an area where they could kind of deemed it was like undesirables. But Hoyt put something in the policy where he said that even though those white people were in those lower rungs, he believed that once they conformed to the American standard of living, that they would be fine and they would be trustworthy. Right? But by contrast, he said the Blacks and Hispanics had no chance of overcoming their situations and just felt that they were a undesirable loan. Now, just think about that audience and Jules, I don't know if you had something you want to touch on with that, but that was a lot of information that I put out there. And I just want you guys to just understand that. These practices were put in place because there's a system that was designed to say, hey, our system of loans and, and our economy is not operating so well. And we need to put a standard in place to make sure that we're protecting ourselves. And by them putting this standard in place, what did it do to a, a population of people? That's the thing that I want you guys to think about.
1: Wow. So, man, that was while well, I'm sitting here listening to it and color coding and what, who, who's wealthy, who's not wealthy, who's uh, middle class or low class, and where we've put people, where we segregating people, whites, blacks, Hispanics, I- I- Irish, Polish, and stuff like that, man. This was methodically thought out. So, it, would you expect? Expressed there was, so what is redlining? Is this systematic, you know, this is, it's systematic, right? Yeah. A denial of services by the, by the uh, federal government and local and stuff like that of the private sector. Okay. Now, in 1960 scientists, sociologists, I'm sorry, John McKnight coined this term redlining, and it defined as the discriminatory practice of violating, you know, what I'm saying, avoiding investments in communities with unfavorable or high risk demographics typically, typically in your minority population, or what you had just totally broke down. And you said when was that when was that put in place, uh Preyers? Well,
0: I mean, this was in the 30s when that, that was, was put it. into place.
1: Uh we can go back. We can I remember when we had the projects and stuff like that in in, in the slum parts of Chicago. And that was in the 1930s that, that brother put that out there and it still affected back, back what what I'm going? 90s? Because they just tore down to them. They just tore down the projects just, just what, what, 30 years ago.
0: True. When I look at this, though, that's one of the things. But one thing that I wanted to just touch on real quick when it comes to this whole thing and why this redlining was just really uh, detrimental, because you got to look at this. And I even think about the area that I grew up in. Um, Mm When my my grandmother, when they moved from the 45th in in Michigan property to, the Avalon Park area and the Chatham area where they ended up basically settling. She mentioned that when they first moved into that area, the area was a mixed area. There were white families. There were a few black families. And so basically right. what she noticed was, is that as more and more black families started to move into those neighborhoods that the white families picked up, sold their homes and they left. What, What's happening was real estate agents were basically going to these white families and basically telling them, hey, you need to get out of this neighborhood because the value of this neighborhood is going to go down because of all these people that are coming in. And so out of fear, and also because they probably didn't want to live around black people, these individuals left. Shame on them. And the thing about it was, this is nothing that we're not seeing that still happens today. Because- Just imagine (laughs) some of these areas that they've basically put on this map that are supposed to be these green areas right now. We know people that live in Chicago, you know, the areas in this city that are basically affluent. You know that the the, the demographics of those neighborhoods are predominantly Caucasian individuals. Right. And then you look at a situation where if a black family (laughs) were to try to enter one of those neighborhoods, it kind of like you have your neighbors looking. They would be wondering, oh, what do they do? How right. do you, they're like, they're they're checking you out, right?
1: Well, you got to prove yourself. Exactly. <laughs> you got to prove yourself to be in that neighborhood. But yeah, go ahead, Prez, I'm sorry,
0: man. But you that's 100% spot on, and I'm glad you said that, because that's exactly what happens, right? They start sizing you up. What do you do for a living? And all this other kind of stuff, right? But then when, <laughs> when each other, when people that look like each other, nobody worries about that. I don't often think about the story that, uh, that Dave Chappelle talked about on one of his comedy specials. And he said, dude, I'm the best comedian in the world. And that's why I live in the community that I live in. And he said, guess who my neighbor is? And his neighbor's a dentist. Nice. And if that don't put it into perspective for you right. guys, this is why we do these type of episodes. <laughs> this he's man's a, number one, he's number one in what he does in his craft.
1: And he's the next door to a dentist. <laughs> Boy, hey, you talking about, you talking about humility, man. Humble, man. Hey, he, like Chappelle said, he ain't got, he all right, he's the greatest co- comedian in the world, but he ain't all flashy. Like I said, what, I, what, Ohio, What do you say, Ohio? Yeah, Ohio. Hey, have a farm in Ohio and just, and just regular. Yeah, he got a ton yeah, of he, acres, though. Right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> hey, that brother. Hey. But, you know, you brought up what the effects of it, man. I mean, you know, the effects of, of, of this here where schools in these black neighborhoods and uh, Hispanic neighborhoods get less funded. Yep, that's funding schools cuz you know you have lack of education, crime rate is high. Black kids who who live in these undervalued homes inside underfunded uh, school districts are become more vulnerable to to criminal to the criminal justice system. It's a vicious cycle. Bad schools, bad homes, bad education leads to bad jobs, leads to leads to life and crime. It's messed up because like you said with the with them mapping out this way and pretty much setting it up. The system pretty much set it up for, for people in these, in these communities, uh, black or Hispanic, stuff like that, to fail. You're not investing in these communities. You're not putting money in, into these communities. So you're not getting the best of anything. You're getting hand-me-downs, rundowns, and stuff like that, not the best materials or the case may be. And you're not set up for life. And But they want you to be this law-abiding citizen, this, this good, stu- uh, a, a good student or a good person and stuff in the future. But you're always used to, to crap. But mentally, they want you to be cool with this. But how can you be cool with this? Or how can you get ahead? Oh, again, I'm sorry. It was it was, it was was placed this way. So the whole plan was for people, minor- I hate to use it, Blacks and, and Hispanics too, never to get ahead is, is what I'm
0: thinking. I might be wrong. I don't know. I kind of feel like uh, from where you're coming from, it's true. Because if you put practices into place, and if those patterns lead to disinvestment in your communities, right? If the lending practices keep homeownership of most people of color from happening, even being a thing, then what do you think is going to happen? Because what's happened to these neighborhoods was basically economic decline, right? Mm-hmm. Because they, like you said, they withhold services from them, right? So not only were the schools bad, right? But you started seeing more and more businesses that weren't able to prosper, and new businesses weren't coming in to replace them. So now you have people that are in these communities, they don't have access to grocery stores. They don't have access to basic right. systems. They don't have access to schools, right? But what's it overabundantly put into these neighborhoods? Liquor stores. Liquor Things stores, like that yeah. that will
1: keep you down. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It, was As, designed, designed. it was designed. It's designed.
0: No go, go ahead, press. because you're hey, hey you talking good, brother. You're talking good. And so when you look at that type of situation, that is how they placed it. But then at the same time, history, the media, and everybody else will have you look at us and they'll have you talk about our neighborhoods and say how we're the problem. But we didn't design these problems. When you strip neighborhoods and you just strip things away from people, right? What are they left with? Because like I always say on this podcast audience, Jules and our families and, and, and my family, they worked their asses off. They wanted to have a little something, right? But the lessons that they put down to their kids were the best thing that they knew have. They always talk to you about paying your bills on time and not having debt and all these other different things. But that was all that they knew. They didn't know the game of how other people know the game because there's a game out there that's being played by individuals that wasn't passed down to anybody that looks like us. Because you look at our president who's filed bankruptcy So many times you can't even count, and he's still a very wealthy individual. And so you have to realize that these laws that are put in place, these laws are put into place to basically help the rich keep their money, right? Because then they can hide behind tax laws, right? They can hide behind bankruptcy laws. They can move money. They can leverage debt. And those are the things that aren't taught to us, right? But that's all consequences of this redlining, because that's the education. Because you get the education by having the exposure. If you didn't have the home ownership at those times, then how were you to loan their game, right? And that's the thing. Even to date, people say, I can't believe that they do X, Y, Z to their community. Well, guess what? These individuals don't even own that community. Think about the home ownership numbers that are in the city of Chicago. You have more people that rent, which is why it's really awesome that you have organizations out here that are trying to start up programs to get more people of color in inner cities to own their homes? Because that's the beginning part of how you change these conditions.
1: I think the numbers uh, of people that actually own their homes, I, as far as African Americans, I think it's less than 30%. I think, if I was, I was looking up, try to do research on it. You correct me if I'm wrong, Press. It's not a lot. But as you said, the, the key is to, to, to own your to homeowners. Homeowner and you can you care about your neighborhood. Own a home or a business or whatever the case may be. Own lots. You're owning something. You own your home, you own your lots, you own some schools, you own some property, you'll be able to, to take care of this neighborhood. You dictate what's what's going on in this neighborhood. You know what I'm saying? You're gonna get you're gonna be you're gonna know the community. You know the people who, who's gonna be in these communities. You be able to help people, you get to employ people. And another thing you get to do. These homes is yours, and you can pass it down. Now, we're going to get this in the, in the future. Uh, we're going to talk about this in the future uh, segment of what happened when 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 Big Mama owned these homes and then the bank of getting it back. But that's that's for a future, future episode. I was just
0: going to say this, man, just <laughs> flat out. When I, when I look at this whole situation, it, it's, it's bogus. Now, I'm going to say that the racism that happened within real estate, and it just, to me, it illustrated how these institutions basically basically used a lot of this stuff to sanction and almost make it over time okay uh, for individuals to do this to people of color, right? Mm-hmm. It became this idea in people's heads that a white neighborhood was considered a good one while a black neighborhood was considered a bad one. Now, I'm just going to say this to our listeners. You don't know how many times in my life whether it was in school, high school, college, or even professionally, where you hear people talk about different neighborhoods in the city. And if it's a neighborhood that's basically predominantly African-American, they will basically try to find a way and tell you a way that why this is a bad neighborhood. And these people have never even stepped foot in these neighborhoods. They have no idea what these neighborhoods are. But it's because the way that the system designed it's designed for people to have these stigmas in their mind about certain zones and certain areas. And this is a bad area. And, and the only reason why they say that is because it's predominantly Black. Like, we're not people that are out here that own, that we're not people out here that work hard and we want to have something as well. And I think that a lot of these redlining these situations cause a lot of prejudice and stigma in the minds of people when it comes to these neighborhoods. No, I think you're right. You know what? We We talked a lot today, man. One thing we can't
1: get around it is that in minority neighborhoods, Black or Hispanics, or whatever the case may be, in these neighborhoods always have a, a, a bad name. And we got to get away from that. But who controlled that narrative? The media controlled the narrative, and the people and politicians controlled the narrative. It, it was a saying. I was watching, the, uh, I was watching a documentary on the uh, Tucson, the, the, the Greenwood District. And one cat said, i always remember, he said, if you're not sitting down at the table, then you're on the menu. Dude, he said that, and I was like, "My God!" <laughs> and you're right. When they did, the, when they drew up the maps and stuff like that, how you eloquently put it, we wasn't invited to that meal. We we was on the menu. That's right. And now you you see the results of it today. So you know what we got to get invited to these dinners, and you put somebody what? else on the menu. Uh, now I'm just playing y'all. <laughs> I'm just playing. We ain't putting nobody else on the menu. But we gonna put it on the menu where everybody can live in the place and neighborhoods and stuff where everybody wanna live at. You know, mm-hmm. you're right. Black, you know, say just because it's a black neighborhood doesn't mean it's always a bad neighborhood. It's plenty right. of black neighborhoods around here. Just have money and it's beautiful homes and well kept uh, lawns and stuff like that. It's just the the narrative people putting out. Everything black is bad. That's been like that since
0: since the beginning of the time. And, and we like got to change said, that narrative, man. We do got to change that narrative. And one thing I want to piggyback on when you said we need to start being invited to these dinners, I said we need to start hosting our own fucking dinners. Oh, dude, even better. Even better, Prez. I'm sorry if I went off a
1: little bit, but even better, even better. We can host our own dinners,
0: own parties. (laughs) (laughs) But the thing about it is, when you look at the ruins that happened over time, a lot of these neighborhoods, they crumbled. You saw nothing but empty blocks, right? And I mentioned earlier, a lot of these places didn't have access to banking and healthcare and things of this nature, right? Mm -hmm. But let's also talk about the employment opportunities in these areas, right? So if you're saying, if we're saying how the businesses started to leave and they started to go away, then what do you think that the people, what are they doing for work, right? Because no business is going to relocate in the area where the property value is being uh, decreased because of what they're doing to the real estate thing by, you got to think about it. They purposely undervalued those communities. So a business isn't going to say, I'm going to come in here and invest. Because they're like, no, that's a loser proposition and nobody's mm-hmm. going to do that. Ain't no money. No, there's no money mm-hmm. in it.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I mean, and so we see later on in, 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 uh, in the 60s where, where, you know, Dr. King, you know, started to work with the LBJ and LBJ basically came up with uh, a couple of different acts to try to help, you know, kind of shore up some of this stuff. So what we saw created was the Fair Housing Act. And what this act really was basically supposed to do was, it was supposed to. Make it illegal to discriminate on the basis of uh, anyone that was looking to sell or rent housing, right? Uh, Or seeking a mortgage or housing assistance or any other sort of housing-related activities, right? You were protected against discrimination uh, by your race, your color, your origin, religion, sex, and familial status, and even disabilities, right? The one thing, though, in our history that we saw is that Congress considered these fair housing bills over the years— but they never got enough support uh, for the majority for them to pass. One thing that I wanted to just piggyback off of real quick when it comes to this is the fact that LBJ did sign into law, the HUD Act, and that was in August of 68. Mm. And for our audience, I want you to just listen to these words. When he put that law into place, he said, today, we're going to put on the books of America law, what I genuinely believe is the most farsighted, most comprehensive, the most massive housing program in American history. And what this was, was this law was just basically his way of trying to even the playing field and trying to remove that racial discrimination within the, uh, the, the, the real estate industry. And honestly, when I look back on history, when it comes to that Housing and Urban Development Act of 68, I think that that's one of the, the laws that a lot of people don't really talk about. You got to look at this. One other thing that I wanted to touch on is all the uh, the fair housing talk, right, from previous decades and all the different fights and the battles. The one thing that it misses to me is an obvious point. I think the safe, decent, and affordable housing is a human right. That's something that anybody and everybody should have access to. And this is something that we've brought up on this podcast on this season. We're going to shed light on these issues to me that are basic human rights that basically were... Taken away from individuals, right? So we're not talking about you know situations that people are asking for things that are far-reaching things. This is just basic human rights. Give me the opportunity to basically be able to buy a home. Give me the opportunity to get a loan, right? Don't look at me just because of the color of my skin, but look at me because of my merit. Look mm-hmm. at me because I own this type of I have this type of income. My credit worthiness is this. Give me that opportunity. That's what this stuff is all about, and that's all the tenor of the stuff that we've been talking about on this podcast.
1: Man, prayers you on fire. Answers had to fight for everything since day one. Since it got over in the 1600s, you had to fight for equality. You got Jim Crow. You got to fight for, you know, the end of Jim Crow and fight for busing to have busing to have uh, schools and you know and all this stuff. Everything we we, have, we we want, we have to fight for. And like you said, press You said only thing we want is just equal rights. That's the only thing. It, it, Dude, that's the only thing we wanted. It was just the right to have what everybody else has had. Hell, we over here. Why can't we? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I mean, we over here. So okay, one more thing on the books of you know, like you said in six eight. You know, when it, when Johnson had put that in uh, in order, it was a week after Martin Luther King was assassinated. He uh, signed that, you know, the Fair Housing Act, and that's just like you said, a press to help create, you know, limit discriminatory practices related to landlords and tenants in housing. You know the act was, you know, it's the principle for every for every American that should have equal opportunity. You look at it and it's like, man, why do we have to have this? But okay, all right, we same same game, different 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 um different set of rules. Okay, so now to even the playing playing field, Lyndon B. Johnson put this into uh into order, which we need because Mm -hmm. it cuts off all this BS where, well, or. Or try to cut off this bs where you try to own a home and stuff like that, and they tell you oh, well, I'm sorry, it's either your credit or or you don't have enough money in the bank or it, you know it's 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 just not the right neighborhood for you yep and we, and we've seen that happen because I forget man, I want to say I'm trying to think of what year with it was it was 2010. I don't know if you remember with uh the uh uh with the com- with the comedian George Wilborn well what he uh, Chris? He was I trying to buy him. a house. He remember, remember, he was trying to buy a house in Bridgeport. Oh, that's right. Yep. He was trying to buy a house in Bridgeport, and the realtor told him that he, he, you know, that he couldn't get it. Well, they did a little research. They opened an investigation on why. Because, hey, he got money. Well, they come to find out that the previous owners didn't want to sell the Black to African-Americans. If we didn't have this, this, this rule in place,
0: we would never know that. So you know what? That's an important uh, little nugget there that Jules brought up. That in the back in the day was called a covenant. And those were basically underhanded secret uh, agreements that uh, land uh, owners and homeowners had where they basically agreed that they wouldn't sell a property to a person of color. And isn't something that that was something that they were doing back in the 40s and even still in this neighborhood of Bridgeport in, in the Chicago area in 2010? Mm-hmm. <laughs> an individual 2010. still had that type of mentality.
1: Now, of course, you know, of course, the, you know, those people got sued. It was six thousand bucks they had to give to the warborn's uh, agents. And also they get the feds are doing the, have They're going to conduct the housing tests for the next uh, three to four years. So it's ramification to it. But like you say, if we if this was this stuff wasn't in in place, we'd have been in bad shape,
0: man. I mean, another thing, too, uh, let's let's take it a step further when you look at this act. And expanded funding for uh, federal housing programs. So, you talked about briefly on the episode, you know, some of the low income housing that was put in place, right? So, those programs helped that. Uh, There were rent subsidies that were offered for the elderly and disabled. And we look at today's times, our elderly and our disabled and our most vulnerable people aren't being protected, they aren't being taken care of. And at least in that time in our history, we had programs in place that actually helped those individuals out. Um, There were housing rehab grants to help poor homeowners, provisions for veterans, so that those individuals made very low down payments to obtain mortgages, right? Our veterans are mistreated in this country so horribly. And you have to look at the things that were done for them in the past and how these are the individuals that are forgotten today. It's just really unfortunate when you look at things in that, in that type of lens. The only other thing I wanted to bring up when it comes to this act was Lyndon B. Johnson. He had an ambitious goal that he wanted to replace within 10 years every slum dwelling in the country. He wanted to build 6 million homes for low and moderate income families, right? Okay. He had very ambitious ideas. But then what do you think happened to those listeners? A lot of that stuff, it didn't happen. The biggest accomplishment though, when you look at the history on this, I mean, this is something that, you know, I've done a lot of like this research on. And I would say the biggest accomplishment was that The housing policies, they shifted to more of like a private sector type of idea and not governments, right? So these private sectors were creating and they were running low-income housing in the country, right? And I thought that that was important. There's a lot of different things when you look at uh, the housing programs in this country. A lot of individuals were able to take advantage of those. A lot of people were able to get their first homes because of those situations. And that is really important when you think about it. Also we've seen here in Chicago locally that we had Gail Sincata. She was a local Chicago resident that lived in our Austin neighborhood here in in Chicago. And she was an individual that kind of looked around and she saw, whoa, she's like, it's the 70s. And we still are being dealt with individuals that aren't properly uh, taken care of individuals that are looking for homes, right? Mm -hmm. She also saw the quality of schools in her neighborhood (laughs) were being tied to real estate values. She became a really huge activist and it just branched from her direct involvement with her kids' schools. Then she evolved and moved up to local movements where she wanted more fair financial practices within the real estate industry. Now, this is an individual that led protests against unfair landlords. So you brought that up earlier, Jules, Mm -hmm. but she saw results. And the thing about her was she had some unconventional methods. She was known for her community organizing style. She kind of was a little messy with the way that she did things. You know, she was up with a bunch of protesters to people's homes. She kind of almost forced her way to the seat of the table, as Jules kind of brings up sometimes, right? She was one of those individuals that she let, put things in your face and she didn't allow you to skirt things under the rug, right? And mm-hmm. it was really awesome when you kind of looked up research on her and saw, like, man, she was not going. She basically was one of those individuals that was very confrontational in her approaches. Uh, she would show up to, like I said, people's homes, offices, headquarters. And for her, it was anything that she had to do to get your attention. Anything that you she had to do to basically get uh, recognition for a cause. Gail was going to do that. She was instrumental uh, in the passing of the Home Mortgage Disclosure Act. But for anybody in our audience that doesn't realize, that basically made sure that financial institutions were basically transparent in any data in regards to real estate sales or any sort of real estate transactions, they had to make that information uh, public, right? So you have to do those type of things when the public doesn't believe the banks and institutions are act operating on the up and up, right? Mm-hmm. Because there was a lot of public concern over credit shortages in certain uh, neighborhoods in the uh, in the inner city, jewels. so that was just one of the things where I just was really repressed with her because that made it where they had to be transparent. And they had to basically open up their business operations and their business dealings. And she forced them to have to do that.
1: Hey, she was born and raised in that Austin neighborhood on that West side, man. So, you know, she wasn't no punk. No, she wasn't no punk, man. She even threatened to uh, hang loan shark sign over the federal reserve. Board in
0: Washington.
1: <laughs> so she was, she was a little radical, but you know, in order to get, you know, in order to get some things things accomplished, you're gonna have to be a little radical. Now you, you got to be a little messy, have some little grit. You know, even Mayor Daly said that she was a visionary and an active force for the housing issues in the in the city, uh, particularly you know in that in that West Side area. Right, uh, man, dude, this you talking about a person with just skin in the game and just boots on ground, man? She she was ahead of a national pe- the uh, the People's Action with that that neighborhood network of thirty groups. From over 110 cities, man, and this group, you know, instrumental that, that uh, that House Mortgage and the Disclosure Act of '75, man. So she, good man, kudos to you know what I'm saying to Gail, man, she really, really did did our people's uh, a uh, service.
0: She did, and, and one thing that you mentioned, which I definitely agree with, while she was definitely seen to be radical in her approach, mm-hmm. uh, but she was also kind of uh pragmatic when it came to, in regards to Lacy like, achieving her goals. Because the one thing that I want our audience to to, to listen to, we understand business. We understand that businesses are in business to make a profit, right? Mm -hmm. She understood that as well. But what she also did is she worked with these businesses to make sure that they understood how to learn how to overcome obstacles and conditions that prevented individuals in the inner city from being successful, right? So she wanted to work with them and say, look, these are the situations that are going on in these low-income communities. This is why these conditions are here. Work with these communities so that way they can be better partners for you and then you can still make money, right? Mm -hmm. She did a lot of work with HUD. She developed programs that were aimed at protecting not only borrowers, but she also kept the pressure on banks to make sure that they were making sound and fair loans to people in inner cities, right? And I would just say this, man, without her, uh, American cities will have less affordable homes, fewer jobs. And I think that the government she really enhanced that because she forced them to actually have to pay attention to their people, right? And mm-hmm. so, like what Jules mentioned, I mean, that, that was machine play. You know, she was a product of that Austin neighborhood and she wasn't going. You know no,
1: what I mean? she wasn't. She wasn't. <laughs> and like you said, I piggybacked what you said, prayers, man, because not only, okay, we're getting these things, we're getting these acts, we're getting these homes and stuff like that, but you got to do, you got to get the education what we've been talking about. You got to know what you're talking about. You got to be able to be sharp and be educated and know what you getting yourself into when just in case you come to a situation, hey, well, I want to invest in this this place here or this property or this over here. So that's what she was about. OK, we we got this. But OK, you need to educate yourself on how we can keep this, you know, and and get and get a get and get ahead.
0: for sure man because her her biggest thing was she just she opposed bias-based banking practices. Mm -hmm. because what we were talking about on this episode audiences all of this stuff was biases that were put out into the heads of the industry people right and so she took a local basically argument from chicago and she created a national dialogue and debate over bank and lending policies so as we talk about on this podcast We have to make sure that we're keeping that fight going because she took a local cause and turned it into a national one. She took this all the way to Washington and she actually made things happen. To Jules's point, yeah, she got messy and she didn't back down from confrontation, but her quote, and it was always kind of like funny when I was like doing some research on this, she said, yeah, we are not nice when we protest, when we demonstrate in people's homes and offices. But she said, but bad housing isn't nice. Mm -hmm. She said, redlining, isn't nice? She said, crime in our streets, isn't nice? She said, these are all conditions that we didn't create, but these are conditions that we need to fix and address, right? And that's why she was out there protesting. She addressed it. (laughs) Equal access to mortgage loans for residents and low income and minority communities, that was her life's work, you know? And the thing about it was, is I really, really appreciated like learning more about her. Uh, She's no longer with us, but she definitely make sure that these people were transparent in how they dealt with us, right? And make sure that the playing field was as equal as it could be. Now, obviously in our next episode, when we do the second part of this discussion, we're going to talk about some of the practices that are going on today. But she did her part to at least get her get us from where we were then to getting us to the next step in the discussion. So, you know, Jules, we got a lot to discuss on this topic in particular, audience I know we gave you guys a lot of information on this episode, but when you guys think about the history, when it comes to real estate, when it comes to wealth creation in this country, these are things that Jules and I have talked about on this season. And you'll see that there's basically a rhyme or reason for these episodes that we're doing because we want to just make sure that our listeners are understanding not only the history, but understanding that, hey, there's things that are going on in this country that we have to tighten up. And a lot of these conditions from the past still exist today. And that's why we got to keep having these discussions to make sure that people understand the conditions that are going on. That's all I got on this one, man. This episode, like I said, is going to be another conversation next week. And we're going to piggyback off of where we left off of it on today. Jules, going to hit him with that curtain call, bruh. All right. This
1: curtain call goes out to Inglewood Developing Group, founded by Aisha Butler and Dion Lucas. Their goal in the Inglewood community is to empower residents by turning renters into homeowners. EDG brought their first property in 2019 and now their renovation project, a red brick two-flat property, is now market ready. Butler and Lucas first got the idea from Inglewood Developing Group in 2018 after nonprofit lender Chicago Community Loan Fund put out a request for developers to take part in Chicago's neighborhood rebuild pilot program, which gave at-risk youth jobs to rehab vacant buildings. EDG, renovation project, is part of a by-the-block approach to building up Black communities by facilitating affordable home ownership while preventing gentrification. Now, Butler stated home ownership is the key to turn around community struggles with property struggles with crime, abandoned buildings, and vacant lots. Aisha Butler and Dion Lucas appreciate all you guys' hard work and keep up the good work. Thank you.
0: Jules, thanks for that curtain call, man. Like we've done uh, with this podcast on season two, man, we want to just keep continuing to hit you guys with content like this, where we can kind of keep this message at the forefront. So this bottom block approach is something that I really, really love. And I definitely hope that more individuals can kind of step up like Dion and and Aisha did on this. Um, As always, you can find this podcast on Amazon Music, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, Google Podcast and Deezer. We appreciate your continued support of this podcast. Without you, we wouldn't be. On the next episode, we will pull back the curtain on modern-day redlining practices by financial institutions. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Peace.